This is In the Studio with Michael Card. Welcome. I'm Wayne Shepard, and we have a whole program outlined here that I'm looking forward to. Yeah, we're going to catch up uh, with uh, one of our good friends at ELIC. Uh, mm-hmm. We have a new book uh, to talk about. Ephesians. I'm yeah. about the book of Ephesians. Yeah. Ephesiology. Ephesiology. I love it when people make up words. <laughs> the study of Ephesians, huh? or Ephesus. Yeah, the application of what happened in Ephesus as a paradigm for the church going forward. It's a, it's an incredible idea. And those two interviews are just half this podcast, yes. because in the second half, we're going to hear you teach on the Gospel of Luke, right? recorded at a Biblical Imagination Conference in Manchester, New Hampshire. Yeah, we're going to be looking at how Jesus, especially in Luke, Luke is interested in how he's open to the marginalized uh, and the poor and women and uh, that sort of thing. Now, was this recorded at the Manchester, New Hampshire church where we had the pastor on one time? Yes, I think it's I think Eric. It is. Uh-huh. Yeah, Eric DeVitro. DeVitro, that's yeah. it. Okay. Mm-hmm. So it was a very special time as always. Yeah, he's a good friend. All right. Before we turn to Michael Cooper and talk about Ephesians, your song, Even the Darkness, kind of ties in, doesn't it? Yeah, this this is a kid's song, but it, it's it's interesting how much meaning you can pack into a kid's song. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And it's a way of looking at the world and realizing that being the light of the world, uh, even the darkness is not dark to mm, him. I think mm-hmm. Job talks about that. Uh, that um, So even the darkness is light to him. And so and when we're tempted to look at the world and the situations that, that we're going to be talking out in the, about in the program, you know, as Christians, we don't, you know, wring our hands and despair. We, we have every reason to hope because he is the light of the world, and no matter how dark it seems, he will never stop being the light of the world. Well, in between our conversations today, we're going to hear some of your music, including this song, which will start us out, Even the Darkness, and then we'll talk with Michael Cooper here in the studio with Michael Card. Even the darkness is light to him night is as bright as the day So you are safe when the light grows dim For even the darkness is light to Him The Father above does not slumber or sleep He wakefully watches our ways Then there's no reason for you to weep For the Father above neither slumbers nor sleeps So dry your eyes of angel blue And trust the one who died for you Would not Jesus safely keep The little ones he loves asleep Even the darkness is light to him And night is as bright as the day So you are safe when the light grows dim For even the darkness is light to Him Even the darkness is light to Him I know what you're going to say, Michael. You miss that piano. I do miss that piano. That's from (laughs) that Molin Studio Baldwin that had been all souped up and voiced. uh, That was your personal piano. I do. I miss that piano. Yeah. We uh, have these recordings it made in the studio, so yeah. live performances. Thank you for doing that song. Mm-hmm. Uh, Michael Cooper joins us. I'm going to be very lazy here and ask Michael to self-introduce himself. Wow. What, what, what do you think? <laughs> Gah, slacker. <laughs> Michael, enter and sign in, please. Yeah, good. Well, thanks. It's it's great to be with you guys. I'm so excited for uh, this opportunity. Um, uh, yeah, I, you know, I don't know how exactly to introduce myself, except that I'm a, a lifelong uh, observer of missions in the world and um, had been a missionary for many years and went into the academic world where Mike and I ultimately connected mm-hmm. and then uh, back into the world of missions and uh, just uh, find it a real joy to bring, you know, some some um, a- academic study to the world of missions and and to bring the world of missions to academic study. Good. Hmm. Well, so. we got two thinkers here with us today, Michael and Michael. So I'm I'm going to sit back and listen to you guys. Uh, so. <laughs> I just want to know what Mike thinks. <laughs> yeah, right. That's what I was saying. <laughs> uh, you've written a book. Tell us about the book. Yeah, the book is entitled "Ephesiology: The Study of a of 
the church in Ephesus, uh, the study of the Ephesian movement. And I, I wrote this book out of what ended up being 25 years of really thinking about the church in Ephesus, beginning wow. back in our days in Romania in the 1990s. And uh, things just began to come together and um, about a, a year and a half, two years ago, and gave some more thought to the significance of that church. And as I began to dig in deeper into the New Testament, I, I was really surprised. You know, I have all of this academic background, if you will, um, and never really understood or saw how much of the New Testament was connected to that city of Ephesus. And so, I, I mean, in the book, I finally come to the conclusion that the church in Ephesus was the most significant church in the New Testament. I think you said 40% of the New Testament yeah. books are connected with Ephesus. I know John yeah. John is in Ephesus when he writes his gospel, we think. Right. And Luke, right. Yeah. is Luke in, in Ephesus when he writes? Not when he writes his gospel. Okay. No, I'm, I'm sure he was there at some point with Paul. But, um, yeah, so the gospel of John, I, I'm 100% certain that John was in Ephesus when he writes that. Uh-huh. Um, and would love to get into more of this, because there's so much interesting overlap with uh, what you wrote about John. But what what you're doing is you're taking, uh, you're taking these facts and uh, applying them or, or making a paradigm uh, out of the experience of the church in Ephesus? Yeah, so what I'm trying to do in the book is to tell the story of the church in Ephesus by not just simply looking at Paul's letter that's entitled Ephesians, which mm-hmm. in reality was a circular letter that was intended for many churches in Asia, in Asia Minor, but to look at everything that was associated with Ephesus and use that to add color to what was going on uh, in that movement. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's you know, of course, looking at the book of Acts, uh, the end of chapter 18, all of chapter 19, part of chapter 20, when Paul meets with the Ephesian elders. Uh, then it's it, looking at the letter to the Ephesians and uh, the theology that Paul uh, uh, teaches that really grounds that movement. Mm-hmm. And then First Timothy, of course, uh, written to Timothy, talking about leadership and what it's going to take to lead a movement. In 2 Timothy, looking at uh, how that movement multiplied. And then, and then uh, Jesus' letters to not only the church in Ephesus, but the other six churches mm-hmm. uh, of Asia Minor, and wh- how that informs us and shows us what Jesus expected to happen in those churches for that movement to sustain to the point to complete God's mission. Mm-hmm. And so, and so I weave those in with uh, stories about, for example, the Gospel of John, because that was such a significant gospel, mm-hmm. and written specifically to uh, unite Jesus's story with the story of the people in Ephesus. Mm-hmm. And then look at other books too. First and Second Peter, for example, uh, are both addressed to churches in Asia, Asia Minor. Now, have you been to Ephesus? Oh, uh, you know what? I'm sad to say I haven't. Uh, I'm I w- waiting for you to go, and then I'll go with you. Well, I, I went there several years ago and did a did a you know walked around and pretended like I knew what I was talking about. <laughs> it was for the TV series, <laughs> yeah, did, right? which is which is what I do kind of for a living. And <laughs> and, and the, the amazing thing about Ephesus is, first of all, that so much of it is still there, but mm-hmm. that that great temple uh, to Artemis has basically sunk into a swamp. And that one, you know, one of the seven wonders of the world. And when I think of John or or think of Paul, I think about them in and around this this huge. It it was what eleven times bigger than the Parthenon or something. It was this yeah. humongous temple, and and that it, it's in that ra- kind of raw paganism, all kinds of um, heresies. I mean, in the Christian community, right? I mean, it, yeah. John and and Paul are dealing with all kinds of. Uh, there are worshipers. There are people that st- still worship John the Baptist as the Messiah in Ephesus. Mm. I mean, come on! And 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 so Paul has to sort through all that, and and uh, and 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 again, yeah. you're 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 showing us how the way he dealt with those issues really became a paradigm for the church. Oh, absolutely! Yeah, yeah I mean, uh, the Temple of Artemis and everything associated—not just with the temple, but with the whole philosophy of that area, which, as you know, and you write about in your uh, John book, 
is uh, focusing on that Logos philosophy mm-hmm. of Heraclitus uh, from the 6th century B.C. I mean, that was the most well-known philosophy in all of Asia, and perhaps even all of Asia Minor. In fact, early writers talk about Heraclitus as being more popular than uh, Socrates and Aristotle uh, and Plato. Wow. And uh, and so that that is kind of the backdrop. And, you know, there's a good case to be made that the, the school of Tyrannaeus, where Paul taught, uh-huh. could have been located at that temple, because it was not uncommon for those philosophical schools to be associated with the temple. With the temples? Wow. Can I ask you guys a question? Is this, was Ephesus sort of a cultural crossroads? Oh, absolutely. Well, talk yeah. to me about that. <laughs> yeah, well, you think about Asia, and, and this is one of the... Uh, Downsides, I think, of our limited English language, um, because we often will talk about the nations and just translate it as Gentile, and it sets us up to believe that there were Jews, there were Samaritans, and then this other ethnic group that were called Gentiles. Uh, but the reality is, in Asia, there were more than 50 distinct ethnic groups. Wow. And so Paul was popped down uh, or led by the Lord in just an amazing way in the center of all of these ethnic groups okay. with with many diverse philosophical uh, ideas. And uh, and God, God does something absolutely remarkable. Yeah. And so, you know, in Acts 19.10, after uh, the, the incident in the synagogue, and then he's teaching at the school of Tyrannaeus, Luke says that the word, the logos of the Lord, uh, was spread to every resident. And so something just spectacular happened uh, in that city. And so I'm, what I'm trying to do in the book is to tell that story and then ask the question, you know, can that happen today where we are? Mike, you're looking at kind of an interesting start to Michael's book in front of you. Yeah, well, he, he, he opens the book by uh, give it, giving us a section on uh, how to read the book, which I think I'm glad you did that, Michael, because... Uh, as I was reading through the first two or three chapters, I, I was seeing all the familiar um, backgrounds that I remember studying with William Lane. But had I not read this, uh, op- one of these, it's, it's about two chapters in, I think, um, I, I wouldn't have understood where you were going with this. I mean, it, at first I thought, well, this is just another interesting book on Ephesus. But you're, you're, um, you're asking what the facts mean, and I, I think that's, that's a wonderful methodology. Yeah, and ultimately what I arrive at is what I call a missiological theology. Mm. And I make a distinction in the book. In fact, I'm very deliberate in not equating missiological theology with uh, contextualization. Uh Uh, Contextualization is this act by which a missionary goes into another culture and tries to make the Scripture and the Gospel relevant. Mm Mm-hmm. What I think is unique in uh, the movement in Ephesus, and with Paul and, and John's writing in particular, and Peter as well, is that they are making a deliberate attempt to tell the true stories of Jesus, especially in John's case, the true stories of Jesus, in such a way that they're connecting with the cultural stories of the people. He's not contextualizing it. He's not making it relevant. But he is telling the, those true stories. And as you know, the, the, the Gospel of John is so unique among the four Gospels. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what I began to see in studying that was that the uniqueness addressed specific cultural issues uh, occurring in the city of Ephesus and in the area of Asia. So for those of us who live in this multicultural world today, uh, we have some lessons to learn from this. I think we do, and I, I think one of the lessons that I'm trying to draw from this study is that, that you know what, we have these beautiful stories of who Jesus is, mm-hmm. and God has been at work in our culture, and although sometimes it feels like that we're not seeing it, He is working. Um, he, he, just, he just does. He's sovereign. He wants to be known. And so we have this beautiful responsibility of joining with Him to make explicit what is implicit. And that's what John does, and that's what Paul does. They make explicit this logos. In the beginning was the logos, Mm -hmm. uh, which was implicit already in society. And so, you know, a part of uh, our role, I think, as believers, as Christ followers, is working hard to look and see what God's doing and make it explicit so people can understand. 
I had a friend who used to say we have to make him believable and beautiful. Mm, yeah, that's a. I mean, that's a great way to put yeah. it. Yeah. What else do we need to know, Michael? Well, the book, um, I, I'm not sure it, it, when the podcast airs, but the book comes out uh, 29th of February, and the publisher thought that this was a very auspicious day. Okay, well, it's out uh, now then. It's, it's, it's out, yeah. so. All right, it's out. Um, and, uh, and so it's available from William Carey Publisher. Um, it's on our website as well, Ephesiology. And uh, and one of the things, one of the unique features of the book is that uh, we're trying to incorporate technology in a print book, and so there are QR codes at the end of each yeah. chapter that take you to more content oh, uh, on our website. That's all free for good, those who good. who purchase the book. But what we're hoping to do is to uh, engage with people and and do what uh, Mike and I love to do, and that's doing theology and community. Uh, we want more voices. Well, we'll put the information for the book in our program notes for yes. this podcast so our listeners can check up on that. Michael Cooper, thank you. You're welcome. Great to be with you guys. Yeah, thanks for spending some time with us. Yeah, I loved it. As we wrap up with Michael Cooper, I'm going to ask Michael Card to sing a song for us. This was recorded at Wheaton College, but I remember the first time I ever heard you sing this song. We were in Budapest together. Wow. You sang this to a group of missionaries who were there on retreat. And the song is titled, I Left Everything to Follow You. So Mm. think of the meaning singing to those missionaries. Here's Michael Card.
uh, over the past several years, um, I've been involved with a wonderful ministry called ELIC, English Language Institute in China. I, I can't tell you uh, how creative. It's one of the most creative ministries uh, I've ever been a part of in terms of taking care of their people and uh, the, the way they, they reach out and, and carry the gospel. And one of those key people um, in the ministry is Gary Laos, who I've also known for, I don't know, 15 years, I guess. Well, we've spent about a week together uh, all over Israel in uh, Galilee and Judea looking at the life of Jesus. Uh, what, what, what's been your favorite thing so far? Um, I think seeing the breadth of things that you have shared with us where we can see the results of careful preparation and yet flexibility. So where we're going, what we're doing, how you not just allow us to see but help to interpret the experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's an amazing experience as a result. Did you like being left in the desert for an hour? Was that good, a good time for you? We had a short wilderness experience of about an hour, which was a surprising to me, but a very powerful experience in and of itself to recognize what that was like. Um, I thought since Gary was here, this might be a good chance for us to get an update on how he's doing, because he's shifted his uh, focus in the ministry, and also how ELIC is doing. Uh, I've been with ELIC now over 30 years, so I've seen the incredible growth and development and change. Uh, Obviously, there are challenges in any environment like that where you're growing, Uh, but God has really been at work, and we have seen results of his faithfulness in places like China, Southeast Asia, and now in the Middle East. Can you give just a quick overview on the, the basic approach of ELIC, because it's unique? We've done some different things. I think first, uh, as I was thinking about this, I'm, I'm reminded of the approach you take with your tours. You first treat people as individuals, not just numbers. You have a very specific focus and set of prioritize that you work. Thirdly, you prepare carefully and intentionally for what you want to achieve. And we've done a lot of the same. We have a clear purpose in terms of providing excellent educational services, and yet also that is not enough. We desire to effectively and intentionally share good news. Now, your responsibilities have shifted somewhat. I heard you uh, referring to your emeritus position. Uh, Tell us about that. I originally became involved in the area of human resources, dealing with all the people issues from recruiting to training, preparation, and then in-field service. Uh, More recently, I've been working on relationships, often with either alumni or friends of the organization, in some cases, who have been involved for 10, 20, or 30 years. Uh, It's amazing to see people who have given five or 10 consecutive summers to serve in a capacity like that we have. Well, I know when we come together for sabbatical, periods of sabbatical, I got to know some of the teachers, uh, a lot of young college kids, but some older people as well. Um, I've never been around a a group... uh, that are ministering quite the way these folks are. The, the, the collegiality is really amazing. One of the hallmarks we have is we only send people on teams. We believe that what they demonstrate is a precursor and just as important as what they earn the right to say at a later point. So we send people on teams and we talk about what they can and can't do, where they're going to make sure they're effective. Okay, so I'm, I'm still not quite clear what it is exactly you're doing now to support ELIC. You're coming alongside supporters, or, I mean, help me to understand what you're doing now. It's interesting that we often think about working in relationships outside of an organization in terms of their financial support or other support. Uh, Oftentimes, I believe we have done too little in terms of recognizing and appreciating and thanking them for the contribution. So one of my primary purposes is to engage people that have been supporting, not to take them for granted, but rather to give them an update on what their investment has been and what difference it has made. So that is a, it's a delightful job to be engaged with people who we have known and who have been uh, really with us in the ministry for many years. Okay, so I'm listening to this uh, podcast now and hearing you talking about ELIC. 
and I want to get involved uh, at, at at some point. I want to uh, maybe go overseas and, and teach for a summer, or I've just retired, or I want to give financial support. Where do I go? What do I do? Uh, one of the ways is to go to the ELIC website, www.elic.org. Uh, that'll give you a lot of information. Uh, I should say we have two primary programs. One is four weeks in the summer, and it goes to a variety of countries in the Middle East and East Asia. We have college students on the way up, all the way up to 65 years old. And in fact, the median age of our four-week program is about 50. So a lot of people, whether they're educators or early retirees, see this as something that is very meaningful in their life, perhaps even as they're transitioning. Mm. I can just tell anybody who's listening, if you're interested in a creative ministry that has a fantastic outreach, uh, check out ELIC. Uh, they, there, there's no ministry like, uh, like theirs. And thanks for coming and uh, being a part of the program, Gary. Well, Michael, thank you for the delightful relationship we've had over the years and for the impact you're making around the world. Back in the studio now, Mike, I'm glad you had that chance to talk with Gary. My daughter has had some experience with ELIC going to China several times. Really? Well, I, 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 I said it before and I'll say it again. I've never known another ministry who takes such wonderful care of mostly young people, mm-hmm. but some older retired yeah, people right. who work for yeah, them. Yeah, she's had a mixture on her trips. Yeah, yeah, yeah. there's just no other ministry like ELIC. They are, they are a wonderful group. Well, we need to pause the session right here, but there is much more on the way. We're always glad to read your reactions to this program. You can send your comments or questions to us through our website. Go to michaelcard.com and scroll down to find contact. Look forward to reading what you post to michaelcard.com. And you can extend the impact of the teaching you've heard from Michael. Check out his insights through his weekly blog, his books, his music, and Bible conferences. Explore all that's waiting for you at michaelcard.com. Well, coming up, more music and conversation in just a moment here in the studio with Michael Card. Join us for a classic edition of In the Studio with Michael Card. We'll open up the program archives and present a session recorded at the Mole End Studio. The Bible teaching, guest conversations, and studio music performances are some of the most inspiring times when we gathered in Franklin, Tennessee. The instruments are tuned, the Bible is open, so make sure you join us. Look for the post and invite other like minds to hear the podcast. All the details at michaelcard.com. Thank you for listening to In the Studio with Michael Card. And be sure to leave a review of our podcast on iTunes when you have a chance. That helps other listeners get to know us as well. We're going to be uh, hearing your teaching from Luke's Gospel in a moment. Michael, you want Uh to set this up for us? Yeah. um, I'm going to talk about uh, Luke's interest in Jesus' interest (laughs) in in the marginalized. Uh And also uh, the fact that Luke um, portrays the Pharisees in a pretty positive way, but it, it makes perfect sense. Who's Luke a companion of? Paul. Yeah. What's Paul? He's a Pharisee. Mm-hmm. And a new idea for me is we, we meet a Pharisee uh, here in Luke 7 who whose name we know. His name is Simon. And what I'm coming to realize is that if there's a Pharisee uh, whose name we know, like Joseph of Arimathea or Nicodemus, uh, that person is probably a follower of Hillel. That is, there are Pharisees who are uh, sympathetic to the ministry of Jesus. They're not all um, uh, attacking his not ministry. Not all bad guys, huh? Not all bad guys, and Luke knows that. I mean, there's a, there's a group called the, uh, the Shemites, the followers of Shemai, and those are the ones who kill people that disagree with them. Those are the people that are, are constantly in con- on conflict with Jesus. But the Hillelites don't seem to be that way. And, uh, and Simon... Um, I'm absolutely convinced because I really want it to be this way. (laughs) Simon is a follower of Hillel. We're going to hear your teaching as recorded at a Biblical Imagination Conference in Manchester, New Hampshire. That's coming up in a moment. But first, this song from Michael Card. Close your eyes so you can see.
they see meaning beyond the mystery and hear the silence of the stars so close your eyes so you can see the way he meant this world to be and understand with a childlike heart the place we Here's another unique uniqueness of Luke. In Luke, the Pharisees aren't always bad guys. Jesus has meal fellowship three times in Luke with Pharisees. Meal number one and meal number three are very congenial meals. This is the first one. Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, Master. Nobody's throwing anything or calling anybody a brood of vipers. Okay. And the third meal is also very congenial. Jesus is giving them friendly advice on how not to be embarrassed by sitting at the wrong place. Right? There's no anger. Nobody gets mad. Now, meal two doesn't go so well because the truth is he had a lot of problem with Pharisees. They had a lot of problems with him. Okay, but what does that mean? Let's think about that. Why would Luke, who is a companion of Paul, have a different view of the Pharisees? Paul's a Pharisee. In fact, leadership of the early church for generations was Pharisaic. Okay? The Pharisees gave leadership to the church. So they're not all bad guys, and Luke wants you to know that. But the other Gospels don't have that, uh, that same perspective. So here, here's a friendly meal. Um, yeah, the three times are uh, 736, 1137, and 141. And Luke doesn't implicate the Pharisees in the crucifixion of Jesus. So now one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, and it's a big deal for a Pharisee to have you come to his house. That means he approves of you. That means you're clean, right? So he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined. So Jesus is laying on his left side, propped up on his left elbow, and he eats with his right hand. That's around a low three-sided table called a triclinium. Leonardo da Vinci is a pretty good artist, but he's a rotten Bible scholar. It's, it was not like the, you know, his great picture. So he's leaning. He's reclining. Last Supper's that way. That's why John can lean up against Jesus' breast, right? Because they're, they're lying down on a couch. Very, very Greek, very Hellenistic. So uh, it also implies a slave culture because the slaves cut your food up for you because you only got one hand eat with. So he's at the Pharisees. He's reclined at the table. When a woman who lived a sinful life in the town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisees, she brought an alabaster uh, jar of perfume as she stood behind him uh, at his feet weeping. Now, the other way this works is if he's lying down, you understand how she has access to his feet. She's standing along the wall, right? And she's weeping and her tears fall on his feet. Works perfectly. Now, why is she weeping? What has happened to this woman? And, and let me tell you what I think. She's heard the preaching of John the Baptist. 
She's either heard John or she's heard the message of, of John because we find this in the Gospels. These people come to Jesus and they fall at his feet and they are aware that they are sinful. And if you hear John's message, that's John's message. In, in Luke 5, when Peter falls down in front of Jesus and says, get away from me, I'm a sinful man. Why do you think Peter has that feeling? He's heard the preaching of John the Baptist, right? John has prepared the way, and he did a good job until they chopped his head off. He has prepared the way, and what does that mean? That means that people are flocking to Jesus to get their sins forgiven because they know. That's, that's, so that's, I think that's a very interesting piece. See, what does it mean that she's there? It means that she's heard the preaching of John the Baptist, and there's only one place she can go to, and that's the feet of Jesus. Okay? And she's weeping. Uh, now, how she got in there is the, un, that's the $24,000 question. An unclean woman in a Pharisee's house, uh, you know, just use your imagination how she must have snuck in there, because trust me, it's as far as they're concerned, they're all unclean now. We got to, you know, clean this place out because this unclean woman. So she's at his feet weeping, and she has this alabaster jar of perfume, and this is nard. Uh, it's a plant that grows in the foothills of the Himalayas. It's not like Jean Nate or Brute or something like that, right? <laughs> this is something her grandmother left her mother, and her mother left her. Uh, the other woman that anoints Jesus' uh, feet, they calculate that it's worth a year's wages. It's very precious. This is the most precious thing she has. She's going to pour it on his feet. Okay, so she's been impacted by the gospel. So she... she uh, she began to wet his feet with her tears. She wiped them with her hair, and you've all heard the stories. Um, you know, woman's not supposed to let her hair down in public. Uh, so, but she wipes his feet with her hair, and she, kiss, he, she kisses his feet, and she pours perfume on them. So here's a Pharisee who doesn't get it, and a sinful woman who totally gets it. And that's uniquely Luke. You will not read a story like that in any of the Gospels. That's Luke. In fact, there's a, there's a few basic characteristics of each one of the Gospels, and you learn these things, and you'll hear a verse, and you'll go, well, that's Luke. If the person is amazed, it's Luke, okay? Uh, I call Luke the Gospel of Amazement. There are like five words that can be translated amazed, and you, Luke uses all five of them. And usually, or often, he'll use two. They were astonished and amazed. When you hear that, you go, that's Luke. Only Luke talks like that, okay? The Gospel of Amazement. I call it. Okay. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, which is always an indication that they're a bad person. <laughs> it's, it's a literary device. It's always used. You know, the rich man, he says to himself, I'm going to tear down these barns and build bigger barns, okay? It, you, it, it's, a, it's an indication you're a bad person. So this is what he's thinking. If this man were a prophet... What's a prophet? Prophet is a person who says what God would say if he was there. If this man were a prophet, he would know who's touching him, what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. See? Categories. Jesus is a prophet. She's a sinner. Now, what does that mean? Okay, let, let, me, let me suggest to you the value system of being a Pharisee. It's the easiest way to live your life. Just label people. Right? <laughs> Just label people. You don't have to learn their names. You don't have to learn what hurts them. If you really want to know somebody, find out what hurts them. But if you're a Pharisee, you don't have to do that. So that's a Republican. That's a Democrat, right? Labels, easy. Well, I mean, the biggest, that's a woman. Well, we all have, we know how women are, right? That's a man. Well, we know how men are. But what does Paul say about labels? No more. Greek. You know, Gentile, no, slave, free, no more male, no more female. What does that mean? What does that mean? That means we learn each other's names. That means we find out what hurts each other, okay? But, but Simon, very Pharisaic. She's a woman. She's a sinner. He's a prophet. See, that way I don't have to deal with you if I label you. I've got you figured out, see? And Paul says, uh-uh. That's not how we live our lives. That's not how Jesus lived his life. So Jesus answered him. I want you to see how congenial this is. Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. See, isn't that nice? Jesus being nice. 
And he launches into this parable. Two men owed money to a certain money lender. See, Simon hears a parable and goes, okay, I'm good at this. This is what I do. Okay, I'm a Pharisee. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he canceled the debts of them both. Now, which one will love him more? Okay, he ends with a question to engage him, right? That's how parables work. And Simon goes, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled. Now, Simon has the answer, right? In his head. In his head. And Jesus is going to help him move that answer from his head to his heart. Because that's what parables do. They reintegrate us. And how do they do that? They engage our imagination. imagination. See how it works? See, Jesus knows if he can engage your imagination, he can get you. Now, if he just teaches a fact and you agree or disagree with that, your head, okay? Or if he can manipulate you emotionally, make you cry, right? But that's not what Jesus does. He'll tell a parable that you've got to engage with. If you don't get engaged, you're not going to get it. That's what he who has ears to hear, let him hear. That's what that means. Jesus is saying, if you don't get this, I mean, if you don't listen to this, you're not going to get it. He explains one of his parables in private to the disciples. Otherwise... You're on your own, right? It's, it's you and the Holy Spirit are left to figure this thing out. And that's the power of his teaching. It's the great power of his teaching, and it's the great weakness of his teaching. Because there are people who won't invest and engage. And if you don't do it, you're not going to get it. You're not going to get it, okay? So, um, sorry I keep going off on these, but these are all important things to me. So, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, tell us the parable. I suppose the one who had the bigger debt... You have judged correctly. Isn't that nice? You've judged no name-calling. Then, listen to this detail. This is an eyewitness detail. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon. So he looks back at her, but he's talking to Simon. That's an eyewitness detail. Luke has talked to someone who was there who told him this story. Okay? So he looked back at the woman, and and he says to Simon, do you see this woman? Why did he ask him that question? Because Simon hadn't seen her. What had he seen? His category. He saw a sinner, but he didn't see a woman. Okay? So do you see this woman? I came into your house. You didn't give me water for my feet. She wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't give me a kiss, which is the typical thing to do. But this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped, in, in uh, a, a better translation, she hasn't stopped loving on me. She's loving on me the whole time I'm there. Uh, you didn't anoint my head with oil. She anointed my feet with perfume. Uh, therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. Here's the, the, the maxim. He, notice pronoun shift, <laughs> He loves little who's been forgiven little. So an awareness of having been forgiven is the source of your love. All right, I can love you if I realize how much stuff I've been forgiven. If I'm not aware of that having ha- taken place in my life, I can't love you. But do you have any idea of what I've been forgiven for? If, if, you guys, if you had any idea of what a sinner I was, you would all run from this place screaming. Right? And I've been forgiven of all those things. So I can love you. Yeah. So that awareness of our forgiveness is the source of our our being able to love people. Um, The other guests began to say to themselves, what does that mean? It means these aren't good guys. These are bad guys. Who is this who even forgives sins? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So that's... That's an example of a person who, who should get it, who didn't get it. And there's some other, uh, there's some other lists. Uh, the Good Samaritan is a parable about a guy who should get it, the priest and Levite. Do they get it? No, they leave the guy bloody on the road. Who gets it? The Samaritan. The Samaritan should not get it because he's a bad guy. Okay? The tax collector and the Pharisee, right? The tax collector gets it. The Pharisee doesn't get it. And that story is only in Luke. Uh, the rich man and the poor widow. And in the, in the resurrection, who gets it? Who believes? The women get it. 
The disciples, and Luke uses a medical term, the medical term for delirium. The disciples say the women are delirious. Okay? They're just a bunch of delirious women. So that is, that's like the major, I think the major theme in Luke is that the world's being turned upside down, that the bottom rail is on the top now. And I think a lot of that is because of his uniqueness as a slave. He's very excited that the world's been turned upside down. And on, this is another uniquely Lucan passage. It's in 1021. Luke explains this whole, uh, this whole, whatever you call it, literary device. I don't know what the right word for it is. Luke is excited about this because Jesus is excited about this. Luke 10, 21 is a completely unique moment in Jesus' life. Nothing remotely like this is said of Jesus anywhere. So, is this important? This is important. Luke 10, 21 says uh, that they've just come back from mission and the disciples are reporting back of their successful mission. Okay? And Luke says, Jesus, full of joy from the Holy Spirit. There's a moment in Jesus when he's full of joy. So I've got to stop and say, what happened? What made Jesus full of joy? And Jesus says, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and have revealed them to little children because that was your good pleasure. What fills Jesus with joy is the, 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 the marginal people are getting it. And the powerful people on the inside, they're not getting it. Now, I, that doesn't quite fill me with joy. It fills him with joy that the world's being turned upside down, that God is doing his thing, see? And so Luke is excited about it, not because it's some literary device and he's a slave like I've been babbling for the last hour. He's excited about it because Jesus is excited about it. Why are you crying? Who are you looking for? This is a graveyard Were you expecting more? You feel abandoned Like every hope has died The death of all your dreams this is the price of life He will claim his lost possession Repossess you, pay the cost He will purchase you for freedom He will find all that was lost There stands the stranger There on the flowering slope The servant waits for you In a garden of hope Do you perceive now And have your eyes been clear have they been opened? Have they been washed by tears? He will claim his lost possession Repossess you, pay the cost He will purchase you for freedom He will find all that was lost Possess you, pay the cost He will purchase you for freedom He will find all that was lost So run and tell all Those who have longed to hear 
the wait is over. The risen Savior's here. We don't hear that song enough. Yeah, and it's it, it, we're kind of working backwards uh, through this program. Um, we we start with the, the the big vision of someone like Michael Cooper, who's who's giving us the Ephesian movement as a paradigm for the church and pushing back the darkness and and proclaiming the resurrection. And we have the ELIC, this unique ministry that began in China, but they're they're expanding all all over. And, uh, Using English as a tool to um, to kind of put their foot in, get their foot in the door, and and talk about who Jesus is and what he means, and then we come back down to Luke's gospel and and see Jesus doing his thing, uh, um, o- being open to this very marginalized woman, and at the same time not pushing someone like Simon away, but uh, being light and salt and and. Uh, Boy, the lessons there for us are incredible. Yeah, aren't they? yeah. You know, we see them in the life of Jesus, but then we see them lived out in people like Michael Cooper and yeah. Gary Lausch. Yeah. So lots for us to think about and do following this conversation. Yeah. Well, I, I think we uh, again we look back to what these these brothers these ministries are doing as exemplars for us. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, Mike talks about really listening to the text. We really need to listen to the text of Scripture to give us direction and purpose in what we do. And then we look at ELIC and see. Uh, how they're being so creative and using language or, or whatever tool you've been given to make Jesus believable and beautiful in the world. Thanks, Michael. If this time together has been valuable for you, please take a moment and pass along your comments or post a review of this podcast. You can pass along the link for this podcast to a friend. Search for Michael Card on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or on Spotify. And send your comments or questions through us through our website. We look forward to reading what you post to michaelcard.com. You can also access Michael's weekly blog, learn about his conference ministry, and other ways to expand on what you've heard in this session. We're found at michaelcard.com. For all of us on the team, Ron Davis, Lauren Kosky, Lance Mansfield, and our producer, Joe Carlson, I'm Wayne Shepard. Thanks for listening to this edition of In the Studio with Michael Card.